Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike and Jude are joined by Scott Morrison, former Australian Prime Minister and leader of the Federal Parliamentary Liberal Party from 2018 to 2022. They discuss developments in China and Australia during his time in office. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green, joined by my colleague Jude Blanchett. We are really honored and excited to have former Prime Minister of Australia Scott Morrison join us. Scott Morrison was Prime Minister from 2018 to 2022, which was one of the most consequential periods in Australian foreign policy and geopolitics in the Indo-Pacific. He was at the helm when the Quad became a summit when there were major force posture and other initiatives advanced in the U.S.-Australia alliance, Japan-Australia agreements, and AUKUS, the Australia-UK-U.S. agreement on submarines. But perhaps most important, uh, the history books will show, a loyal listener to the Asia chessboard. (laughs) So I also have to explain to American viewers that if we had my old boss, President Bush, on right now, I'd call him Mr. President. But in Australia... That's not a thing. So American viewers should not be shocked or listeners if we refer to him as Scott or Mr. Morrison. Welcome. So glad you could join us. Well, thanks very much, Mike and Jude. It's nice to be with you moving from the audience to the panel and to sort of take part in the conversation. And, you know, I think it's a great program like many of those that come out of the CSIS. And it really does help inform those who are in decision-making roles outside the normal channel of things that would come from your, you know, your officials and others. So, you know, it's, I find it a really engaging platform. So really pleased to be part of it. And, and I'm pleased that you've picked up on the, the Aussie nuances, Mike, with your time down here and enjoying your time in Sydney. Loving it. Although I'm in Washington right now. Yeah. <laughs> so we always start by asking our guests how they got into this, but I'd be really interested. You, before becoming prime minister in 2018, were, were treasurer, you had other portfolios, in border and tourism and, and worked in industry associations, but you came to the job and what was your view of Australia's role in the world of foreign policy of the China challenge? Did you come to the job with some ideas you wanted to test or did you have to kind of look at the world as prime minister in a totally different way? Well, the answer is yes to both of those, as you'd expect from a politician. But the way I tease that out is that, yes, you had to come at it afresh because frankly, in 2018, everything had changed. A lot of the the assumptions that have been made, particularly about our region, the role of China, what China actually was, strategic competition, all of these things had significantly changed over the period in which I'd been in the government. I mean, I I came into government back in 2013 and went on to our National Security Committee. I was then the Minister for Immigration and Border Protection. And so from that time, with the exception of about 10 months, all out throughout the life of our government, I sat on our National Security Committee. So over that period, I mean, the story and the the region and the understanding changed significantly. So yeah, sure, I came into the role with, with, with a reasonable and quite a bit of knowledge about what was occurring. And as the Treasurer of Australia before becoming Prime Minister, my lens on that was particularly economic. And that had begun really with the tensions that were occurring in the trade space between the United States and China. And Australia had always sought to take a position of not being picking sides in that fight uh, on trade. On security issues, it's always been very different. But what we saw, I think, was the conflation of those two things. I mean, I'd, I'd describe the area we we all now sort, have sought to govern in as a, as a period of global uh, conflation 
of just so many different forces, be they strategic, economic, you know, even down to the way resources are used, technology, the environment. I mean, all these things crashing to each other now in a way that I don't think was so intertwined in the past. But coming into the role, particularly the economic perspective, and I was responsible then for uh, approving foreign investment decisions in Australia, and we had already gone well down the path we headed up our foreign investment review board with the former head of, of ASIS and, and ASIO and, and because that was the changing nature of where we were seeing strategic investments coming to Australia and our energy sectors and, and others. And we had to keep saying no and that, that wasn't making me friends in China. So for the Americans, ACO, ASIS, sort of like MI5, MI6 uh, yeah. in the UK. And so that time you were hitting the Treasury, the economic policymakers were getting a hard lesson in national security, basically. Well, they were. And and so national, I mean, economic security became part of national security in a way that I don't think we'd seen before. And that's just not true in Australia. I think that's true elsewhere. And, and then no one understood the link between those things better than Xi Jinping, who has been able to effectively leverage both in that purpose. So it really did require re-looking at economic investment policies and, and various things like this and the involvement of uh, other foreign countries, not just China but many others, but particularly China. Are going to be. And my predecessor, Malcolm Turnbull, who I was treasurer to, had taken some very strong positions when it came to foreign interference in Australia's domestic political system. But together we took the decision on uh, what was effectively on Huawei and uh, we were the first to move in that space even before the United States. So we were very conscious of what was changing and how quickly it was changing. And that was a challenge because as the treasurer, our business sector, which had very big exposures now to China after we put the free trade agreement in place, they were getting hooked on this. And so this was presenting real risks to them. But at the same time, the world had changed. So how you calibrate and price risk in that environment also had to change. And we were doing that as a government. And it was important that we sort of led the business sector through that process as well. How did that work? Were you met with resistance? Was there pretty quick consensus the world had changed? Do you have to sell strategy? This was a big shift for Australia when you were prime minister, a big shift. Did you have to sell it or was it obvious? Uh, no, it wasn't obvious. Ironically, I think it was more obvious to the Australian population than it was to the institutional class. <laughs> both in industry and business and, and politics, um, where there'd been a lot more direct engagement. Um, and the backlash that we ultimately suffered for the position that we took in the face of what was quite extraordinary coercion, that coincided with COVID. So the, ironically, the worst effects of what they might have done in retaliation, i.e. international students, tourism, all these sorts of things, well, that had already been visited upon us through COVID anyway. And so that was a bit of a different environment for a lot of that to take place. But certainly for our exporters and others in discrete sectors in wine and barley and so on, I mean, I still believe just as much coal was finding its way to China, it's just that third parties all of a sudden became very big exporters of coal, mining, mining from the, you know, the, the bowels of their ships. So, yeah, it was a process, Mike. It was a process. The business sector, I think, over time, I think, read the mood in the Australian community and understood what was going on and, and sought to adjust. And there are a couple of incidents that occurred which sort of were flashpoints on that, where some business figures took a very forward-leaning 
approach on China and, and really got a, a very bad reaction in Australia. So there was no doubt in my mind that the Australian public were very on board to what the nature of the risk was and the threat was. And that gave us, I think, a, a lot of ability to continue on what was a, you know, some very difficult decisions that we, we had to make. But I'm very glad we made them because as people would say to me, and often it was state premiers who would say to me, well, why does it have to be us? Why, why do we have to call it out? Why can't someone else do that? And I said, well, tell me who that is. I mean, the United States will always take their position, and they have, but for a country of Australia's size in the Indo-Pacific, and we will live here. And so we had the most to lose by not standing up. We'd seen in the past through a policy of what I can only describe as acquiescence many years ago, where by not saying no, we now have islands that are basically stationary aircraft carriers. No one said no. And in my very strong view and, and, and my government, and to be fair, my predecessor, uh, we said no, and we were prepared to take the heat for it. Building on that, I wonder if I could ask you to just unpack a little bit more how you navigated that period where China comes out with this set of demand or grievances. Then, as you indicated, you have this massive sort of embargo strategy from China not always completely efficacious, as you indicated, there are some slip-throughs, but nonetheless, for, for discrete exporters, barley, wine, th- this was a very significant point of pain. Can you just walk us through, as the leader of the country at that time, how are you assessing the duration of this from Beijing? How are you assessing how much pain you know, can you take before you as a country need to start thinking about alternative strategies? And the reason I'm asking, of course, is because other countries are dealing with this and will increasingly deal with this. So where we have case studies um, of what you should do, I think it's important we have a sort of a global conversation. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you did it and, and advice for others. Well, let me start with the motivation, because that, I think, gave us a lot of determination. And that was we knew we were being singled out as an example, and that if we broke, then that would have very significant implications for everybody else. If they could crack Australia, well, they knew they had a business model that worked. And China, for some time, has been offering the deal, well, we'll make you rich, but we can do what we want, okay? And we said no to that deal. And and that, I think, gave a lot of encouragement to others who could not be as forthright as Australia in our region, but I know we're very pleased that there was a point of resistance that was there. We got amazing support, of course, out of the United States, but also out of Japan and also out of India. I can't underline enough the importance of Japan's support in the region. I talk about Japan and Australia as being the spine of AUKUS, and that's partly geography, but it's also outlook. Uh, where we see the region from, and we see it in a very similar way. I don't think the United States can see it the same way because of their size, scale, broader global interests. Uh, For Japan and Australia, it is right here. India also, but I mean, of course, India is drawn into issues of Central Asia and so on, and they have interests there. So uh, that was really important. We knew if we don't stand up, then this is going to have effects on others. So we were very determined. The second element was this was building up over time. It just sort of didn't all happen on one day. There was the things we did on foreign interference, on the Confucius Institutes. There was the decisions that we were making on foreign investment and knocking things back. There was a very large deal 
I, I knocked back in the um, in in the energy sector. And there were many more that followed. There was what happened with technologies and Huawei and ZTE and these types of things. But it all sort of came to a head in the pandemic when I said, I thought quite reasonably, given the devastating impact that COVID was having on the entire world and shutting down everything and people's livelihoods and killing millions of people, that we should know where what happened. And they took great offence to this great offence to this. And this was, a, I think, a tipping point on all the other things that are built up to. Now, I have no doubt, guys, that that would have occurred with whatever the next thing was. It just happened to be that. And we were heading to that point at some time. Now, the Chinese response to it was quite targeted. I mean, they didn't block, you know, the exports of our iron ore. They couldn't. They did shut their country down. And they knew that. I mean, the Chinese have always been threatening for some time that they'll go and source their supplies from other places. Well, you know, certainly in the, in the short to medium term, good luck with that in terms of security of supply and, and all the rest of the things you need for that. But that said, they were quite targeted on areas which they thought would deliver the most political pain in Australia, not unlike how they do that to the United States from time to time when they target particular districts. So we were seeing that and we understood what they were doing. This is why I'm so proud of Australian producers and I would be constantly getting emails and messages back saying, it's, it's hurting, PM, but you're doing the right thing and we're with you. And that was coming back from farmers on the ground. Um, they moved quickly and we sought to support them in diversifying their client base overseas. And, you know, there is an upside to this. It sort of forced a bit of a recalibration of people's outlook, not putting all of their eggs in one basket in China. And you might not be getting the prices, say you were getting on lobsters before, but they were still pulling as many out of the sea and selling them. And they then had to think a little bit differently about their markets, live, refrigerated, things like that. So it did force a bit of a recalibration in some of these sectors' mindsets about how they're going to pursue future markets. But I think the other thing it did was, it for the first time, I think, and certainly Australia, and I suspect this was impacting on how investors were thinking around the world, is yes, it's a big market. And yes, it's a big consumer demand market, but you've got to price the risk. You've got to price the risk. And that has to be factored into the returns that you're, you're expecting out of this market. And you've got to weigh that up in a balanced portfolio of, of your export markets. And I think before it was seen as a, as a bit of a, you know, a, a, a pretty much just turning up to the amusement park. You, you know, you, you get into every ride and you could enjoy them all. And, and uh, that's how it would be. Now, I think the events in particular the last five years have forced the investment community around the world to re-evaluate all of that. And so that's why now I think boards and others all around the world are really trying to understand these issues a lot better so they can price risk. Uh, because, as I said, in an age of conflation, you can't just know the basics of your consumer and your supply chain. Yeah, I was just thinking this is one where um, I don't think the top line economic statistics, snapshot statistics of today are capturing changes that are going to occur over the next one, three, five years. As you just mentioned, there are discussions happening in boardrooms right now where companies are very seriously thinking under the guise of de-risking, how do they move significant portions of their operations out of China sequentially? So, yeah. um, you know, people who say decoupling is a myth because if you look at the you know, the amount of bilateral trade between the U.S. and China, that's true as a snapshot today. But I think the world is going to look differently five years from now. Well, you can't move your manufacturing operations when the missiles hit. I mean, 
No, no, I'm saying that's going to happen. I'm, I'm actually in the camp of not very forward-leaning on, I think, the likelihood of those sorts of things. But that said, if you've got big direct investments in China, you're going to have to weigh this up. If you've just got, you know, you're just moving cash around, well, you can move the cash around in the afternoon and in your equities and so on. But that is, I think, a big... So to go back to your first question, Mike, sort of came in and it was a treasurer and uh, and there's always been a bit of an economic lens that I've put across these things because the two, you, you can't separate them now. I mean, economic security and, and, and economics has been largely weaponized in China's global ambitions. And uh, we've seen that, whether it's through the Global Development Initiative or the many other things they do, we've seen it here in our own region in the Southwest Pacific. You know, they turn up with bags of cash and that's very much part of the agenda. And a transparent democracy like Australia is not going to do the things, nor is the United States or Japan, that they do. But that doesn't mean there's not a market for it. I wonder if I could ask a follow-up on the economic coercion piece in Australia's case study here. You know, Australia is an advanced, wealthy democracy, 13th largest economy in the world. You'd mentioned its ability to withstand this attack on the country. Not every country is as wealthy as Australia. And you'd also mentioned the critical role that other partners and allies in the region played in helping to buttress does that indicate that we need more of a formal collective strategy for dealing with Chinese economic coercion? There are countries who are going to be less developed and who might not have at hand a relationship with a Japan or an India where you can see sort of imports of Australian or, or X countries products increase proportionate to the attack. Well, the short answer to that is yes, but I think it occurs in two tiers. And by two tiers, I don't mean a hierarchy, I just mean in two different spaces. And the first one is what I'd call that tier of greater alignment. And it's not a tier necessarily of alliances. Alliances do exist in that tier. And by that, I'm talking about Australia, the United States, Japan, Korea, some of the more developed nations of of, of ASEAN and so on, where you already have these existing relationships. And you are looking for a greater alignment of what you're doing and the way you're um, dealing with the coercion and the threat that comes from China. And, you know, that's what AUKUS came from. That's what the Quad has come from. That's what the many other sort of our engagement directly with ASEAN has come from. You know, that is has its own right benefit that we've always driven with our partnership with ASEAN. But that alignment of outlook, that alignment of, of where it's appropriate, um, capabilities of intelligence, of defence capabilities, but also of economic integration, of scientific cooperation, the security of supply chains through all of this, that has to be really achieved at that top tier. And AUKUS was about many things, but it was also a bit of a reach out from the Indo-Pacific over to the other side of the world, bringing together what I'd describe as the three countries in which the greatest trust exists, I think, of any three countries in the world. And I still remain a bit troubled, though, about the broader European sort of acquiescence or position when it comes to China. And we've seen that recently with the visits that have taken place there, not just from Emmanuel Macron, but out of in Spain and so on. That is a bit troubling. But the point is, these alignment was our strategy. A, deal with our own capability and scale of capability in Australia and defence and our economic resilience and all of those sorts of things, diversifying our markets. Then there was the partnerships and alignments that we pursued with a, a lot of um, vigour And I think they've been very effective. And the timing of that worked well because, frankly, the countries we're looking to align with were looking to do exactly the same thing. And it was Abe-san who effectively led the charge on this before it all sort of become realised. And I remember a dinner and he and I had up in Darwin 
very early on after I became Prime Minister. And we talked about this at length. And I became a, a full-blown subscriber to FOIP right there and then, and the thinking behind it, more importantly. And his strategy was one of alignment. It didn't require these formal alliances. That's why whether you're talking about the Quad or AUKUS and some try to describe it as, and China tries to describe it as a sort of a, an Indo-Pacific NATO. No, it's not. And it doesn't need to be. That's, if it is an aligned outlook on what's happening in the region and, and enough engagement that's occurring between the partners to produce the same result. So that's the top tier, the, or the first tier. The second tier are those who effectively benefit from that, who aren't in a position to take on such a prominent position, but they are very happy to see that counterbalance, that balancing of forces that exists uh, within the region because that creates the stability that enables them to preserve their autonomy. My experience in the Indo-Pacific is the one thing that gets everybody in agreement is this, their individual sovereignty. Uh, they don't want that compromised by anybody, let alone whether it's China or Australia or the United States or Japan or doesn't matter. They want to be their own countries. And I think what we've done in pursuing those, those alignments is to preserve their autonomy, to preserve their sovereignty. And I think that is understood and appreciated. But I don't expect to see it in a statement. Your comment on Abe is, I think, spot on and gratifying because, as you know, I wrote a book about how uh, the grant strategy he pulled together for Japan was adopted by Australia. He convinced you, um, very like-minded, of course, convinced Donald, he convinced Donald Trump and Joe Biden you couldn't yeah. have two more different American presidents that the free and open Indo-Pacific was the framework to go with. I wanted to ask you about India and Modi, because when you were prime minister, the, the quad, which many people were prepared to bury <laughs> at various points over the years since it was- well, some first, did in the past. Some very <laughs> loudly did. It went from a foreign minister's meeting to a summit on your watch. And my sense is that the most important change might have been the India-Australia relationship that that's sort of a large part of why the Quad became such a really critical part of the architecture. But without betraying confidences, can you tell us a bit about your uh, strategic discussions with Narendra Modi and and what sort of brought about this change in India-Australia relationships? It's a very different relationship than it was before you became prime minister. Modi is the common denominator in all of that. It wouldn't have occurred without him. He had extraordinary relationship, not just with myself, but also my two predecessors. Um, Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull, uh, there was regular and constant dialogue. There's a lot of sort of cultural commonality between Australia and India as well. It's 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 fairly easy relationship from that perspective. And it sits, our relationship with India sits out, it's not defined by our relationship with others. Like we see each other for who we are each, not through the prism of being an American ally or, you know, a, a British colony or whatever originally. So it's, it's, it's a relationship in its own right. I think Narendra always got that. And when I was Prime Minister, we were able to bring together our first ever trade agreement with Narendra. We were also able to put in place new def- defence and intelligence arrangements and, and, and agreements. And I think what changed in our relationship with India is everyone has always sought to go direct to the economic relationship with India. And like everybody wants to dance with India on the economy. But the view I took was, well, look, that will be a product of deepening the trust that we have on these security issues, which were quite vital to their interests. And so we pursued that in the first instance. I said, let's put the economy, it's very important to both of us, but let, let us demonstrate our trust credentials here on a number of issues that are really important to you and to us and in this part of the world. 
And we pursued that and we achieved it. And then that set up the opportunity to then proceed with the trade agreement. Now, um, the new government, good luck to them, is going to seek to try and extend that agreement. I think that will be difficult. But if they do, well, they'll have my congratulations. But I think cracking the seal on that trade agreement that we're able to achieve with Narendra, and I um, employed my predecessor, Tony Abbott, on occasions because of COVID to go there and, and see him uh, to be able to bring that to conclusion. So that was the nature of the discussion. It, I mean, as I was saying before, in, in a conflated world, You've got to deal with all these issues, all of these issues at the same time. You can't partition it away. You've got to bring them all together and make them link. And I think what Narendra Modi has been really good at is, is seeing that. And he's got his own very discreet interests. I mean, we were having a big argument about sugar the whole time I was Prime Minister. But you could understand that, leave that over there and the system was dealing with it, but stay focused on the big picture. And I think Narendra Modi has always seen that big picture very, very clearly. And that's been tremendous for us but it's been vital for the Quad. Australian prime ministers like to fight about sugar, right? When I was working in the White House, the biggest arguments, basically the only arguments, and they weren't really arguments, but the biggest points of contention between George W. Bush and John Howard was sugar during the FDA. <laughs> yep. There's, you know, you've got your south, we've got our north, yep. <laughs> and there's a lot of people are involved in the sugar industry in North Queensland. So. Was, was, part of the, was part of the cultural and sort of ease of uh, relations with India cricket? Because I thought you guys hated oh, each other. Yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, the first time I met Narendra Modi was at the Melbourne Cricket Ground when he came to visit Australia. And Tony Abbott at the time sat me next to him at the dinner. I was immigration minister at the time. And we had a long conversation about a whole range of different issues. But uh, and, and obviously cricket was one of them. So that's what I mean about the, there's, there's an easy cultural relationship between Australia and India. And India... From my time as immigration minister through as prime minister, it became the single largest source of migrants to Australia. So it is becoming a very, the subcontinent is becoming a very big part of our Australian community. We're the most successful multicultural country on the planet and it works really well. And our Indian community, subcontinent community in Sri Lanka, um, highly entrepreneurial, um, very family orientated and the cultural fit is great and uh, it's, I'm sure it's going to, produce some great um, female and male cricketers in the future for us as well over time. Living uh, in this eastern suburbs not far from your district, I can can see that. And, you know, the U.S.-India strategic transformation in the first instance was really about the geopolitics that were happening, the rise of China and so forth. But what really fueled the U.S.-India relationship was the Indian diaspora in the United States. Biggest, biggest caucus in the U.S. Congress after the America-Israel political action uh, caucus is the uh, is the India caucus. Well, that, that's the same here. It, it's the same here, but it, it's a relationship that I think will keep going from strength to strength. And and I hope. But I mean, I can't underscore how much of it so far has been dependent on on Narendra Modi's own personal commitment. And I I I, I hope to see that extend. I think the other thing we understand about India, and I think it's Australia has a very good understanding of the Indo Pacific which is very different, I think, to what is in the United States and, and in, in Europe and the UK, is I think, we, I think we just get the complexity a bit more and we don't draw too many judgments on it. Um, we understand how democracy works differently in different countries. We understand how the bureaucracy and institutions work differently in, in a lot of the Asian, Southeast Asian and, and East Asian countries. And having an understanding of that nuance, I think where others might lose patience, we can just smile... <laughs> And, you know, take the next meeting and keep going. So I want to ask you about AUKUS. I, do you consider AUKUS the most significant 
piece of uh, national security work you did as prime minister? Is that a fair? Yes, I, th- I think it is. Together, you know, I've been excited being part of what happened with the Quad, but, you know, initiating and founding AUKUS is, is something that I'm so pleased we're able to do. I'd love to tell you that it was something I... <laughs> It was something I was thinking about when I was, you know, back at university. No, it was it was a product of the time and the need of the country. And it was completely consistent with that sort of strategy of alignment and deepening engagement with our key allies and partners to build our own capability to create a sort of a, a, a resistance uh, to the coercion that was occurring. But what occurred to me about it was, I mean, it all came from, you know, the issue of the submarines. And at first it was about submarines. And the fact that the strategic environment had completely changed, even from when we, even from when we had uh, made the decision some years before to go down the diesel submarine route, but by the time I was prime minister, these things were going to be obsolete before they even got wet, and you know there were still delays that were occurring, and that wasn't the reason for not going ahead with it. But there was just no way diesel submarines were going to do the job that we needed them to do twenty years from now, and uh, that meant we would be very constrained in the objectives that we had in our defence strategy. And this was something that we had to address. Now, it wasn't an easy thing um, to move from what we were proposing to do to uh, acquire what we call the Holy Grail, uh, which is nuclear-powered submarine technology from the United States. It only happened one time before, and it was last century and a long time ago, and in very different circumstances. So we set about very quietly over a period of about almost 18 months of first seeking to convince the US uh, nuclear naval community of the fact that we could do this and that we could be a good partner on this. Uh, The strategy was pretty clear. I mean, I have no doubt the Trump administration would have agreed to it in the same way ultimately the Biden administration did. But what was more important that that the, the nuclear naval community agreed to it because they are the custodians of this. And if they weren't on board, then it would be impossible to implement. And so we, we focused on them first to make sure that when the president asked the question, can the Aussies do this? Well, the answer needed to be yes at that point. Not, oh, maybe, or um, and a pause. If that had been the case, it would have been all over. And so we understood this. And, uh, you know, Vice Admiral Mead and others did a, a fantastic job of just working through grindingly over months and months and months through COVID and quietly of just dealing with every question that came up, being able to resolve it so we could get to the point in about well, March or so of 2021 when we knew we could take it up to the next to the administration level. And then, Jake, your listeners will know well from your program, they were fantastic in engaging on the issue and then we worked it up. But the key meeting really before landing it all was the one I had with, with Boris Johnson. This wouldn't have happened without Boris. When I first raised it with Boris, he immediately got it. Um, what it was really all about. And it, by that stage, I've moved it from just being about nuclear subs because that could have happened without AUKUS. What that taught us was that every single time we had to develop a new technology in defence, I wanted the three of us in a room at the start, I, both to define what the need was and define about how we're going to develop the capability and then define how we're going to work together to, to, to implement it and then use it and operationalise it. Because every single time you went down one of these one of these tracks off some new piece of tech defence technology, you had to reinvent the whole process pretty much every time. And then what developed may not particularly meet a requirement we had or the British had or others. So this brought everyone in the room at the start and we understood that defence technology was what was going to change the future of, of 
warfare in the future. And whoever was able to best command that and deal with that was going to be in a much stronger position. So AUKUS was about, A, being able to be in that space very authoritatively, but do it with the three most trusted partners in the world and to ensure that that was spread across all three of us. And then each of us have our own spokes out in our own little worlds and uh, that has the knock-on effect uh, beyond AUKUS. The um, origin story of AUKUS has been told a bit in the Wall Street Journal, I think the City Morning Herald and the Australian, but the Chinese narrative is it was the American military-industrial complex deputizing Australia to fight to defend Taiwan. What you're telling us is this was your office over a period of time, and I was talking to someone today here in Washington who was in the Oval Office with President Biden when Jake and Kurt first briefed him, and there were uniformed guys in the room grimacing. <laughs> it was a hard sell, and it's been sold. I was told today that you know the first Australian grads of the U.S. Nuclear Submarine School are about to graduate. Australian metal welders and electrical engineers are in Connecticut and Rhode Island, you know, with their American colleagues and British colleagues, learning how and thinking how they're going to weld the subs. It's it's real. It's happening. Yeah, no, it's exciting. And I think the point you make, this would interest you as well, is that I think it highlights one of China's weaknesses is assuming that they believe what they're saying is they misunderstand, I think, Western alliances. They, they don't quite understand how they operate and how they work. And in this case with AUKUS, like with ANZUS 70 years before, it, they're probably the only two times and I'm happy to be corrected on this, where Australia took the lead in driving the alliance, where, I mean, this idea was warmly, you know, received in the United States, not just in the ultimate answer by, by, by President Biden and the wonderful support we had um, from Kurt and Jake, but the receptivity to the initial discussion, I mean, that could have been shut down the first time, you know, we got on the, on the phone and said, we'd like to talk about this, and you just hear the click. <laughs> And that's the end of the conversation. I mean, that didn't happen. And so there was a there was a, a receptiveness to it and a preparedness to really work this through in detail. And I think the fact that we put in the, the homework over that period of time, put in a position where there could be a yes. And, and that yes was ultimately up to the, the partners. And, uh, and that's why I say Boris was so critical as a partner of Australia as well, sort of the two of us going together and saying, let's do this. And so I think that the Chinese have completely misunderstood it. Um, and because they look at Australia, I think, through the wrong lens. They see us only through the lens of how they look at the United States. It's a false perspective. Australia have our own set of interests. We have our own reasons for being in our alliance and partnerships that we have. And, you know, in most cases, they absolutely line up um, where, with where our cousins are in the United States. But that that, that is not taken for granted by the US either, which is, I think, one of the reasons why the alliance is so valued. Yeah, I, I would also, I was just out in Southeast Asia recently, and I did come to appreciate that some amount of Chinese misunderstanding is actually intentional messaging to you know other countries around the region who are not necessarily aligned with, with the US. We were talking about Asian NATO, which is this concept where you're trying to pin the Chinese down on, on, are they saying there's something with an Article 5 commitment and they can't answer? But what they're essentially trying to do is talk to, um, they're trying to talk to Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, Philippines, and shape political perspectives there by saying, 
Look what happened in Europe because of quote unquote NATO expansion. These guys are trying to bring the party out here. So I, I worry, although when you look at this narrative on its face, it's BS. And when you try to pin the Chinese down, they can answer it. But I actually think that that's not really where their narrative is. They're pushing a colonial narrative on the region, which is where there's a, an audience for it. Um, and it's been our job to, I think, to counter that narrative wherever we can and to counsel our partners about how they talk about these things in, in the region as well. And we're quite re- good at doing that and in how that message ultimately lands. But no, you're right. That's that's exactly how they try and portray these things. And there is an audience and, and that has to be dealt with, I, I think, really, really seriously because China's not, they're not mucking around. They're not mucking around. This is a completely different China. Uh, I mean, I often talk to John Howard, the Prime Minister, when President Bush was in power and they had a wonderful relationship, but the China they were dealing with it's, it's unrecognisable from the China today. I um, mean, the size of the Chinese military was a fraction of what the Japanese Defence Force was back then, and now it is multiple times greater. So we're just dealing with a completely different world and a China that has ambition that is pretty much now in full view, and it's it's a bold ambition, and it's got a strong Marxist narrative behind it, but one a nationalist one as well that can be quite persuasive as much to its own population as, as potentially others. But uh, I think there are some good runs on the board. I mean, I was very encouraged by the position that President Marcos took the other day, uh, really encouraged by the position, obviously, that Japan, but also the Netherlands took when it came to chips. But the other one part in the region has been Vietnam. I, I mean, frankly, if there was as much awareness of the threat posed by Chinese coercion globally to try and change what I call, well, it was Condi Rice who called it, the world order that favoured freedom, that people often leave out that back part. You know, they just want a rules-based order. Well, a rules-based order that does what? What, you want a valueless one, which, you know, no, one that favours freedom. That's what we believe in. And if stronger backbone in parts of Europe as there are in places like Vietnam and Philippines and things like this, I'd feel a lot more comfortable about global security because at the end of the day, the way to ch- counter any Chinese threat is, the, is, is credible deterrence. That's what provides peace and stability and avoids... The, the awful scenarios that could take place in the Indo-Pacific. And no one wants to see those, none of us. But you don't get there through what I fear is an acquiescence and a transactionalism that we see in, in parts of Western Europe. It's, it's very troubling. I know our time with you is short, so I wonder if I can put one last question to you. One of the great things uh, about the United States having such close and enduring friends in the region is we can hear honest assessments of how U.S. policy is being implemented, but more importantly, received in the region. I wonder if I can ask a a two-parter. Number one is, what are the elements of U.S. strategy and policy on China, not just of the current administration, but over the course of the period you've been watching this seismic shift? What do you think have been the most effective elements of U.S. policy in shaping the strategic environment? And part two is, where is it coming up short? Well, I think the first one is that getting the Indo-Pacific and understanding its central importance to global security and the ability. I've been impressed particularly by the administration's ability to deal with the situation in Ukraine but not lose its focus on the Indo-Pacific. There was a great risk that that would occur and that the Atlanticists would sort of take US focus back over into Europe. They've dealt well with the Ukraine situation, as has Australia. Uh, but that has not taken their focus off the Indo-Pacific. And I know that's something that uh, Mike and Kurt have championed over decades 
and uh, you're no longer the nerdy kids in school on this stuff now. You, um, you're the guys who, who had it right all, all along. And I think that's, that has been reflected in both administrations I dealt with, obviously a bit of a different tone <laughs> to both of those, but I thought the boldness of the Trump administration on those things was necessary to really to have a disruption to the way people thought about it. And that was, I think, being carried through by the Biden administration by engaging again in a lot of these fora that was so important and, uh, you know, the way the quad has been set up and I think the way that President Biden set up the quad when I was obviously there as an initial uh, founding member of it, where he kept the focus on, A, the benefits to the region first, uh, the development and the humanitarian benefits and focusing on COVID. This wasn't about a security pact. Um, it's focused on the uh, supply chain issues, which are critical, critical minerals, critical technologies, all of this. This has to be, remain a big ambition of the Quad. And thirdly, it's about defending that global rules-based order that favours freedom on issues of rules and standards and things like this. So great work. And they continue to engage. So big ticks on all of that. But obviously the big missing piece is the economic piece, ultimately. And not going ahead with the TPP was a great disappointment to Australia. We'd put an enormous amount of work into that. If it wasn't for Shinzo Abe and Malcolm Turnbull, that agreement would never have come to a completion. I'd argue that was probably Malcolm's biggest achievement as Prime Minister. And, you know, some last-minute sort of obstructionism by the Canadians was overcome and we are able to land it. But the United States not being part of that now is, I think, a big problem. And, you know, issues of China wanting to be part of it and Taiwan wanting to be part of it, well, you know, we need America as part of it. I get it, what the domestic politics is in the United States, totally understand it. And that is as bipartisan position as the position on China is on security issues. And that will continue to be a problem. The IPAF, look, I hope it works, but it's not TPP plus. And that's what's going to be needed. And in our region, it's not until that really happens, I think people in the region will be as convinced of US engagement in the region. They get the security piece, they appreciate it, they value it, and it's been great. But it has to go together in this age of conflation with the economic piece and the other issues for them to be fully sold. And I think there's a good audience for that message, a very good audience. The fact that the UK will come into the TPP I think is terrific, but the idea of the accession of China in the TPP, well, my government would never agree to it, and I certainly know the Japanese government would never agree to it, but, gee, I hope things might change at some point in the US and, and that we could see them come in. Our surveys at the US Studies Center show that significant majorities of the American public would support joining TPP. 40-some percent of Trump voters would support joining TPP. But the politics in the US, it, it, almost an ideological level, are really stuck right now. And then when you have a close election, which we'll definitely have, you know, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. But you look at the public opinion polls and you look at the fact that younger Americans, the younger you are in the U.S., the more pro-trade you are. I, I think it's it's an issue, a matter of time. And we need Australia and Japan to, to be really uh, tough with us, frankly. I think, you know, keep, keep us honest, as you just did. But we'll do that, but it's patient too. I mean, we get it. So we're not going to hector the U.S. about it. They know our view and we've just got to wait. I mean, there are sometimes things that, you know, are difficult in our space over here in Australia. 
and you know administrations have been patient with us on other things and that's all right that's the, that's the give and take of a good relationship like sugar. sure no no on sugar we will always man the barricades <laughs> i'm in the white house and my and your friend michael Foley says john howard wants to talk to george w bush just just to say thanks wrap up the fta and and we tell dfat the president doesn't negotiate these things and they said no no and and then uh, of course prime minister howard raises sugar <laughs> so i'm I, I have ptsd on sugar so this is terrific. You you have so much strategic insight to bring. I hope you keep doing this. You're very kind and sometimes send me a text saying that was a good episode. I expect when this comes out to get a text saying best episode ever. <laughs> and I'll leave that to John Kunkel. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. It was a great discussion. Great to be with you guys. Look forward to listening on and uh, to all your other episodes. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.